Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm excited to introduce to you Boo Reimer, who comes from Malmö, Sweden. He's a professor of media and communication studies at the Medea Lab in Malmö. And they're doing some really exciting things in crossover media, in interaction design, all kinds of different spaces. And we met about 10 years ago uh, while I was living in Malmö. And it's just amazing to see how much this space has evolved since then. And just, I want to welcome you and look forward to hearing a little bit more about your work and where it's going. Welcome, Boo. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. So can you tell us a little about a little um, bit about uh, both Medea and sort of your work there? Right. So uh, Medea Lab Malmö is a media lab, which is part of the Malmö University, and I'm director of that. Uh, we've been going since 2009. What we do is working on media design and public engagement, and we try to do that in a very collaborative fashion, collaborative both in the way of working cross-disciplinary with academics from many different fields, working with students, but also quite a lot of the work is doing, done with actors from outside of the university. So we work with municipalities, with companies, with interest organizations and citizens, basically. I mean, it's such a, an innovative model, and we're seeing more of this, but I think, you know, Medea is one of the first that really has taken this out and, and put it into action. I love the way that, you know, in Malmö and in Europe, you really have the opportunity to get access to students that have a global mindset um, because they, you know, are coming from whether it's the Erasmus program or from other parts of the world. How do you think that technology has really impacted the ability to access that different piece of knowledge and those students that might really engage with Medea? Yeah, it's interesting with students because, I mean, you can start by looking at Malmö, who is an incredibly global city by itself. I mean, where people uh, from 175 countries living in Malmö. So you have to start with already here without technology, students from with amazingly different backgrounds and, and experiences. Then, of course, on top of that, you have technology and uh, I'm part of a uh, master program in communication studies, and that's also an online program. So, so that way we also bring uh, students from other parts of the world without actually coming to Malmö in that sense. Or it's a master program where you can take part here physically, but you can also sit in Brazil or in Japan to take part in that. And it's incredibly successful. We have uh, last year 700 applicants for the program. It's, it's amazing. And I think that, you know, there's some really interesting projects that have come out of that. Is there any that sort of stand out to you that you might want to share about that? Um, just to give an example of what kind of things you're producing there. Right. I mean, the, the kinds of projects we have, I mean, sometimes they are based on ideas we have here within universities. Sometimes it's based on random meetings with people or sometimes maybe the municipality or, or companies. Uh, Take part in us. But I mean, the, I think in the way we look at the collaboration as the main part, one example is uh, something called See the Future, 
which is started by a small group of architects, designers who work with the city of Malmö to, in urban planning, where the idea was to set up big binoculars on streets. When you look through them, you could see what that street would look like 10 years from now. So you put different kinds of visions for you. And um, initially, these visions were made by experts, architects and so on. But we took part in that and tried to make it even more user-based. So setting up uh, workshops where citizens living in the areas themselves were able to draw their views of what this street or this building should look like 10 years from now. And then uh, that was put into these big binoculars and then you you can watch that and you, you can slide it around to look into the left and to the right and so that is one of those examples and it's been very successful the, these uh city future periscopes have been imported or exported to other cities around scandinavia that sounds really cool i look forward to checking that out when i'm in malma in a couple of weeks you know it's it's funny i, I remember asking my own son uh, probably about i don't know probably six years ago you know what he thought you know, what he would imagine would be different in 10 years. And this is, you know, 10 years, of course, to a kid at that age, probably, you know, 10 years is an eternity. But he, his response was, I'll be hanging out with my friends in holograms. You know, so I think sometimes uh, we get stuck in our own paradigms of, you know, you can change a building, but you may not be able to completely morph it into something different. Is mm. Do you see a difference in your younger students or in, um, in, in students who maybe come from different areas that are just willing to completely go out of the box and find something that's a solution that we hadn't thought of before? And what kinds of things might that be? Yeah, I think, we, I mean, we try to bring in our students in the work and what we are going to start, actually we have funding from starting in January, a new research platform here called Collaborative Future Making. So that will be on the idea of not doing, I mean, though. There's a lot of future studies, which is often laughed at afterwards because you try to do some ideas and then it turns out that history turns a completely different way. So, I mean, it's not that we're going to do, but we're going to try to work on giving alternative ideas of what can happen in the future. And that will be work with media scholars, with designers, but also with people from literature or uh, social work in many different groups of people. And that's something we're looking forward to. And we can see already now that's a big interest in these kinds of questions. I think it's important, though, I mean, to you can't really predict the future in the very simple way. And so it's not a question of finding, looking at what is the most probable thing and see what, how we can take that, but actually be, go quite wild in these ideas and see what's going to happen. Yeah, no, it's fun to just sort of throw out the paint and see where it lands. Uh, you've been involved in this space for a really long time. What do you think has really changed, you know, and sort of how did, how did Medea come about? Because, uh, you know, this whole idea of doing these cross-disciplinary studies is really still kind of new. And sort of, you know, what was your evolution in getting to where you are at with? Uh, I think, it, I mean, it is very concretely tied to the idea that Malmö University is a very new university. It's not in 1998, so it's only 20 years old. And we have an old University of Lund, which has been around for 250 years around the corner. So when Malmö started, there was no reason for us to become a traditional university. We can never be as good as them in traditional political science, traditional comparative literature, but we can do things cross-disciplinary. 
So people who came to Malmö University did so because they wanted to do things in new ways, working together. So the whole setup is much more cross-disciplinary. The School of Arts and Communication, where I'm at, has both social science and humanities and technology and arts at the same place. Uh, so that's one part. And the other part is that Malmö, as an old industrial city with huge problems, also needed the university. So we've had such a huge support both from municipalities, but also from companies and different kinds of organizations because we all feel that we can do things together here. I came from um, another Swedish city, University of Gothenburg, where I never felt that close to what was happening in that city, as I think quite a few of us do here at the university. Do you find that that... that cross-disciplinary or that that change of creating a space that's more cross-disciplinary and collaborative changes the relationship between student and faculty in a different way? Or is it sa- the same that it was 20 years ago? I think the students that come here also come like we did as, as academics for the reasons that they can do things in different ways than before. I mean, my field is media communications that is normally... I mean, you have a division between media communications that is a fairly theoretical subject, and then you have journalism, which is a very practical one, where here we try to combine theory and practice, which is obviously the natural thing to do, but for historical reasons, these things quite often are separated. So the students have the same idea of coming here as we do. In that way. But do you think that they they communicate? Is, is there a, more of a closeness or... You know, I know that particularly at Malmö and in general, actually, universities are starting to offer more distance learning or mm-hmm. at least hybrid models where it's distributed. Does that change the student dynamic with the, you know, with the faculty? And or do you find that the mediated tools enhance that? Do, do you see that there's any difference there? I think what's happened in these 20 years is that um, technology has become so much simpler. So what we can do together now is quite different from before. When we started, um, a lot of time had to be used on actually teaching all the tools, whereas now when students come here, they know these tools as well as we do, maybe even better. So so there's another way that we can actually get, get down to to do work together straight away. That's also with the MOSSET program, which is really interesting. That a main reason why it's so popular is that people, if you have a media studies education, then you should also experiment with the actual media. And if you have an assignment, you sit in four different parts of the world and you have to work together and do something practical. And then it's up to them to find the tools to do that. And they do. And they come up with solutions that we have never thought of. Yeah. Now, and I think one thing that I, that sort of fascinates me because, you know, we've lived in Sweden and we've lived in the U.S., we've lived in other parts of the world, and you have different connectivity. It's a very simple, simple thing about connectivity, which, and also access to some of the latest, you know, fast tools. And does that impact the ability to really thrive in this environment where it is mostly digitized or or is highly digitized for people coming into it from another place? Maybe less so now, but have you seen a difference? I mean, living in Sweden, for example, our kids had mobile phones from I think they were probably eight or nine when they got their first uh, smartphone because mm-hmm. they needed it to get on the bus to get to school. Whereas we, when we moved to the U.S., and that was 
four years, five years later, a lot of their peers still didn't have mobile phones yet. So I think. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're obviously quite fortunate when it comes to the uh, digital tools that are available to everybody, and it's basically people can use them in different ways. But since we work so much globally, I mean, both in almost a program, we have also another one called communication development, which is working quite a lot with third world countries. We make sure that the technology, we always try to have it as low tech as possible. So you can take part, even though you cannot go to a big studio to broadcast something like that. So it's a way of, I mean, here we're fortunate that people have everything, but we don't want to stay with that possibility here in Malmö or in Sweden. We want to be able to communicate with people that don't have that possibility all the time. I mean, one of the things that I experienced when I was doing my dissertation, for example, is that if you're doing something that's in a cutting edge space, most of the research you'll find is online. It's not in the libraries yet. And a lot of it hasn't even gone to print yet. Has that impacted the way you develop libraries of the future? And I know uh, Malmö University has an amazing library, uh, but uh, some of it is fairly new. Has that Was that part of the influence of the development of the library and thinking about that? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, we, it's quite clear that academia more and more is speeding up in the way that you can't write the same kinds of books in the way if it would take two or three years for them to come out. You have to think about these things. And I mean, especially in a subject like media and communication studies and, and technology subjects, yes, of course, you have to find new ways of publishing where things are available much quicker than before. But I think there's a general trend towards that. I mean, if you write for academic journals, um, articles get out online much, much faster than before. You have an online version before the printed version is there. So even you can have you can actually read the article two years before it's actually going to be printed and so on. So that's a general change, I would say. Does that affect the peer review process? I know in, in academia there's, you know, of course, in order to have peer review journals, you need mm-hmm. to have a certain group of, of peers, but does that put pressure on on their their ability to produce that review in a certain amount of time so that it becomes a timely publication that's of value yeah. to the... Yeah, I mean, that, that has speeded up enormously just in the last five years, I would say. I mean, now, if I previously, if I would send an, an article to a journal, which would then go through a, a blind peer review, maybe I would have to wait a month or a year or something like that, or one and a half year. Now the journals try to make sure that within three months you have your decision. So that's a huge difference. I would imagine but that, that. But that also it's obviously puts pressure on us academics to do these peer reviews because we don't get paid and we have everything else to do, but we do because we're part of a community. Exactly. That's what That was what I was going to say, is that that puts pressure on the academics mm-hmm. that are already have a lot of pressure to yeah. to keep current and to, you know, to produce uh, you know, does it in the I, I'm not sure what the culture is, whether it's different in in Sweden versus in the US, but there's very much the the culture of publisher parish. Mm-hmm. Does that change the dynamic of the whole publish and parish publisher parish, you know, dynamic of academia and the scholarly community? There's been a quite clear streamlining where almost nothing except for the articles in the big international journals matter and 
some supplication for the humanities books, but I mean, it's been much clearer what you're supposed to do and, and so on. And we're actually going to have, a, I'm, I'm going to hold a seminar tomorrow on the logic of academic article writing here at K3, so, which is exactly on these questions. Because even if we don't like it, we have, we're part of a system, we have to know how it works, and, and then we have to do what we can to... I mean, there, there, are pressure, there, there are ways of trying to get away from this, making sure that other kinds of publications are, are seen as worthwhile as well. And there's also a big trend towards the whole idea of open access and trying to get away from these big commercial publishing companies who earn a lot of money by making academics work for free for them. Well, it's so true. I mean, it was one of the justifications for why I published my my dissertation almost as is, but as a mm. book. And it yeah. wasn't that I expected people, a lot of people to go buying the book. It's an academic dissertation. Mm. But I found that when I referred to it in my regular book, but that was for everyone, people were saying, how do I get access to this? Because it was mm. only listed in an academic space that you had to be a scholar in order to access it or pay large amounts of money to get, yeah. you know, to read this dissertation. I said, well, I'll put it up there and you can, you know, download it as, uh, you know, for the, for the ebook. And then at least you have access to what it was yeah. that I was referring to. And I yeah. think there's, we're seeing a trend to more of that because people are curious. They want to know more. Absolutely. I mean, publishing open access online will give you more readers all the time. And, and, there is a change in the system in the way that there are new online journals being published that are created by academics rather than publishing companies. And there's a tipping point somewhere where these journals are going to be more important than traditional ones. So things are definitely changing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you get, for instance, I mean, the university here, and also if you would get external research fund, you it's very, very important that you can show that you will publish your things open access and not having it closed down. So how does that impact, or do you have a conversation there around intellectual property? Is that a hot topic and trying to understand sort of who owns this information? Who owns what you produce? Because I hear a lot of sort of the, the conversation in the scholarly community that I interact in, which is mostly technology-based, where they're saying that, you know, I need to put it out there first under my name. So I make sure that it's basically stamped in the public domain that I was the one that created mm. this. And then I can yeah. go publish it somewhere else. Yeah. I think there are, there are two lines in that. There are people that really fear this uh, giving away things and, and not getting the, the, the merits for it. But there are also the other side, which is much more collaborative, seeing that we all actually get something out of doing it collectively in that way and you will get your your reward somehow anyhow yeah we just had a dissertation uh, i don't know if you remember david quartielis but he is one of the creators of arduino which is a platform probably the most famous platform in the world for for connecting things to the internet and he created that together with three his spanish with three italian friends 10 years ago and they made that into open source hardware which was probably the first example of that and you can discuss why did they do that but they did that and that means that so many people have taken part in improving it all the time developing it and then if someone would want to produce it and sell it and make a profit fine it doesn't concern david and his group mm -hmm. 
And he actually defended his thesis on this last week. Oh, I'll have to check that out. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like to have just a little bit of a shift and learn a little bit more about you and how you use technology, how you feel that it might have changed the way that you move in the world. And do you... Do you have any particular patterns that you try to put into your way of moving in the world to make sure the technology doesn't become uh, a problem, but rather to enhance your... So, I mean, I'm uh, very interested in music. So the way I use technology primarily is, uh, on the one I'm going back to vinyl, but primarily right now trying to do a lot of DJing with uh, wind-up gramophones from the 1920s and 30s. Oh, how cool. (laughs) <laughs> that is the kind of technology that I'm the most fascinated with right now, and uh, which is amazing because you, these old machines have a wonderful sound, even though they're soon 100 years old. And there's a lot of there's a lot of synth gates out there, so even if there's an idea that they're so easily breakable. But if you go to eBay, you have millions and millions to buy them. I was just so going to say that must be great that you have access to technology to find those because they can't. Right. I mean, it's not exactly. like you just go to your regular electronics store and say, "I would like a gramophone." No, exactly. I mean that that's um, <clears throat> you're quite right. I mean the, the the those old stores where you could find some sand gates in in the back room. Yes, you can find some of them, but if you want a particular record with particular artists, you go to eBay. Yes, interesting. And and is eBay still I mean, there's so many new different competitors to eBay or alternatives to eBay. Um, is eBay still sort of the standard, you think, for if you're trying to find something obscure? I think, I mean, given the fact that something which is in a way obscure, like 78s, have definitely found its place on eBay more than anything else. So I would imagine from that, you can, if you generalize from that, it seems to be the place where where, where things are gathered. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if the same wave has happened in Sweden, but it certainly I've seen for my daughter who's 15 last year for Christmas, she wanted a record player. And I thought, what? I know, you want a record player? Mm-hmm. Like this is, you know, a record's coming back. And, and then, of course, I was very sad because I used to have a whole big crate full of you know, of albums that I think I practically gave away because, you know, I mean, probably, probably 20 years ago. And then, of course, she's buying all of these, the same old music. It's not even new music that she's listening to. She's like, oh, I want the, you know, the Grateful Dead and, you know, Bob Marley and all of this. Is Do you find that there's a similar wave there? And is that something that we're trying to get more in touch with the analog in a way, or it, it, could that be a backlash, or is it more just a difference that we're trying to see? I mean, there's, there's definitely that trend all over the world right now, and uh, there are, I just saw that the first pre, the there's a new company, there's a company where you can actually produce vinyl in, in Sweden now again, which hasn't been around for 20 years. So you, you get these machine, these old machines <laughs> that people find and start to use again so that that trend is going everywhere and uh, if that's just you could say it's some kind of nostalgia one way way of showing that you're different from other people but there's also something with the whole 
aesthetics of vinyl and album covers and things like that that you don't have with CDs. So that I think is very, very special. Yeah, oh, I, so, I agree. It's much more tactile. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even CDs, I mean, CDs, you know, I don't think my kids have any CDs. They went straight mm-hmm. To, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they went straight to MP3 or, yeah, yeah. you know. But um, I think that, I mean, like I said, the tech type pop, but it's also the idea of you take one record, you take the, the, the record out of the cover, you put it on and it's only there for 22 minutes, something like that, and then you do something else. I mean, there's some slowness to that as well, which is and some preciousness, which I think is really important. Absolutely. And to listen to it all the way through, yeah, I think, exactly. uh, you know, it's a very different very different pacing i think yeah. um and I, I i appreciate that i do um have do you have any ideas or tools of things that you've seen coming through the university or through your life that you're excited about that are using technology in a new way uh to enhance our our, our life whether or particularly in the well-being space and sort of I mean I think music is certainly something that impacts your well-being slowing down but is there anything that really stands out for you that you've seen that you're excited about I mean we try to work with technology and in, in in doing things that could be kind of challenging the societies go but I, I, a couple of years ago we did work with this company called Bambusa here in Malmo um, which at that time, we're very fast in, in making these, this telephone where you can actually broadcast live. And obviously, that doesn't say anything special today. I mean, that's obvious. But at the time, they were very early, and they had this big impact during the um, Arab Spring because at the time when demonstrations were happening, people could not risk using traditional film cameras being able to trans- transport uh, the film, which would be very diff- very dangerous. So Bamboos at the time was the tool that was used to be able to broadcast straight away. No one could stop that. Bamboos was also one of the first social media that was shut down by the Egypt, Egyptian government. But I, we were very proud of that part of history being there at the time. And that was developed by a company here, but in close collaboration with people at the university. I remember that it was actually it was it was an exciting time, and uh, I actually had uh, some of the students that were in, were in Egypt. I had just been there several months before, and I'd been training them on social media. So I was excited mm-hmm. to see sort of some of that being put into yeah. action, um, yeah. and to be able to have the tools coming from Malma as well. Felt like you know just made the world a little bit smaller in a yeah. way. Um, it's pretty interesting. Where do you see sort of, you know, if you could put on some future glasses like the ones that you have in the streets of Malmö and and uh, imagine where you see Medea being or the university system in general being um, 10, 20 years from now, do you see any major changes in the way that we do things and, you know, that technology might provide the opportunity to do that? I think university now, obviously, with the, the possibilities for online learning and these big uh, MOOCs where you have um, millions of people taking the same courses, that, that is obviously having an, an impact on what the uni- university is. Uh, and, but I think it's, 
it's crucial still that students are visible and being seen. So, I mean, even if we do online work uh, with students, we still make sure that we don't, you know, have thousands of them. It's still the case that they're individuals. And, and we, so what we try to work with is to make sure that you can communicate, you can take part, even if you're not in Malmö. And, and I think those kinds of ways of working is the future rather than trying to streamline for very efficient courses. Well, and you mentioned that you that uh, that particularly your group was doing some collaborative work in developing countries mm-hmm. in terms of access to knowledge and to university programs. Um, do you see more of an expansion there and more of, um, I guess, you know, sort of leveling the playing field, I guess, is the best way that I can describe mm-hmm. it in terms of access to knowledge and access to education. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think it is definitely going that way that technology is getting cheaper. It's getting more available, um, even though there's always the way that people, the ones that are ahead will have an edge and so on. But but definitely there's a democratizing uh, potential or in this, which is so first for those that are out there that are have never been to Malmö or never experienced uh, Malmö University even remotely what would you say is sort of the biggest draw for you and who would be the ideal type of student to come and participate in the programs that you guys offer the big draw is that this is such a multicultural environment both the university as such but Malmö as a city as well so you you do that's something different from being in a small place in other parts of Sweden, for instance. I, 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 that, that if you have people with so many different experiences and uh, backgrounds, you obviously can do different things together than if you're a very more homogeneous group. And that is, I think, what, what is an excitement or an attraction of Malmö at the moment. Both when it comes to coming to Malmö from other parts of Sweden, but also to coming to Malmö from other parts of the world. Absolutely. I mean, it was one of the things that I loved about it. And when we moved there, so my for those of you who don't who are listening who don't know, so my husband is Swedish. I became a Swedish citizen after living there for ten years, but I'm American born. But one of the things that I loved about Malmö was the international community there, and the fact that it was really this beautiful blend. Um, you know, I came from Boston, which is sort of known as the melting pot in the U.S., where, you know, you have a lot of cultures, but you don't really have the same kind of blend um, where I found that, you know, for example, my kids at school, most of their, not most of their, but probably, well, you know, 60% of their friends had a parent that came from somewhere else. So there was a lot of... Um, cross-pollinization, if you will, or what we refer to as love refugees, um, Mm. people that, you know, married into the community, but really, you know, became immersed. And, Mm. um, but then there's also, of course, the large refugee population and immigrant population that, that both parents come from somewhere else. And Mm. That I think has been a challenge, both, both a challenge and, and uh, an advantage for Malma in that you have, some of these, you have access to some different cultures that you wouldn't have access to, and you certainly wouldn't expect as an outside, you're coming into Scandinavia, where I think some of the best Middle Eastern food, for example, 
is mm. in Malmo. Um, I have a hard time finding that here. Um, and the Balkan food. And I mean, there's just a lot of really different experiences that you wouldn't expect as an outsider coming into Sweden. And, and that really impacts the, the culture. Yeah. I mean, we had, we've had waves of immigration uh, for a long time with people coming from Finland initially and then lots of people from Italy in the 50s. And then during the Balkan, people came here during the Balkan crisis. Lots of people coming from Chile and Argentina, and now then from uh, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on. So obviously, it, it is a melting pot with people who come from so many different places. Uh, but now there is a, we've closed the borders. Basically, I mean, we used to be the one nation in, in Europe that had open borders. That's not the case anymore. So in that sense, that influx has basically stop now. Yeah, uh, but and well, hopefully, these things will stabilize a little bit. I think that there was a lot of turmoil. Um, but as we all know, right now, the the globally, the political situation is very sort of, it, it's disrupted. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways we won't go into politics on this show. But it's just it's impacted the way that we look at our own cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, um, it's become uh, something that, you know, hopefully we can use the communication tools and technologies to understand, you know, to create better understanding rather than to uh, build bigger barriers to, uh, to interaction. I just want to, let's see, I want to make sure that I cover all this because this is, you know, it's such a treat to have you here all the way from Sweden to join us today. Um, I want to make sure that we learn a little bit about you and uh, your plans for the future. Are you going to stay in teaching? And is that something that um, that you see as changing? Or I, I know there's been different periods where you were teaching and then other periods where you're working as a director. And um, is there anything that tempts you that's out there in the world beyond academia today? You mean if I could... If you could do anything. Out of, out of uh, playing, being a DJ with my 78s, that would be a nice way of um, changing direction. But I mean, I, I really love being in academia. My wife is professor of design here at the same school. So uh, we have the opportunity through that to do things we like, and we can do that in different environments. I mean, uh, we've been able to, I mean, we've, we've been away to Boston for a year and New York and once in a while. So, I mean, th- there is so many good things about having this uh, as an occupation and having Malmö as a baseball, that is great. I-, I don't see any reason for us to apply for jobs other places, but then we can go instead. My wife's going to be at Cornell for two months in, in the spring, for instance, so then I'm going to come with her for part of that time. So we would be very fortunate in that way. Well, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about academia is that it does give you the opportunity to interact globally. Um, but I look forward to getting, to, you know, to hearing your DJ music coming out. I think we need to find a way for, although it's an analog tool, for you to share some of that. 
Um, so we'll we'll keep watching keep watching yeah. your uh, your website. And for those yeah. of you listening that are curious about Medea or or Boo himself, uh, we'll make sure that we put the links in the show notes. But it's Boo Reimer B O R E I M E R dot com, or check out Medea, which is M E D E A dot M A H. Dot se And if you are driving, please don't try to write that down. It will be on the show notes and you can follow it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything, any closing comments or anything that you would like to share before we Just sign the, in relation to what you said in the end about Medea, that because on the webpage, I mean, we do a lot of outreach work. So we have more than 40 live um, e- events and talks uh, online. And we have now, we've also started a podcast series like yours, and we've done uh, our 25th one right now. And they're very, the podcast would, I would also suggest would be good in uh, driving, while driving, because they're, 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 they're on very different kinds of sub on topics that, that could be of interest, I think. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure that we put a link in the show yeah. notes for that too, so people can find it. What's the name of the podcast? Media Vox, V-O-X. Okay, Media Vox. So we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. And um, thank you again for joining us today. And thank thank you you for the work that you're doing. And um, I just want to honor you and appreciate you for everything that you do. So, uh, And for those of you out there, thank you for taking the time to join us today and to listen to the Evolving Digital Self podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you take a moment to sign up and subscribe and share with your friends so that you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. Until next time, bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.